and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Our conversation today will be about India and Pakistan, or should I say India versus Pakistan, as these two countries, both nuclear powers, have a long history of hostility and conflict, resulting from many historical and political disputes. This month, both countries are celebrating 75 years of independence from Great Britain. We will discuss the causes, current situation, and outlook with our guest and regional expert, Shamila Chaudhry, in a few minutes. Mooney, the word dispute is like a, a, a huge, enormous understatement. Let me give you an example of what's been going on as a way to show how these two countries can't even participate in something as innocent as a chess championship without making headlines with their grievances. A few weeks ago, Pakistan pulled out of the chess Olympics over territorial disagreement, citing that the torch relay that had that was starting the event passed over Jammu and Kashmir to them of course Pakistani territory to Indian to India it was Indian land and of course India has accused its rival of now politicizing those games it's it's just a microcosm of the historic level of animosity between these two countries And we could go on and on with the examples, Peter. India is now upset at China for agreeing as part of the Belt and Road Initiative to help Pakistan create a connectivity project and to make matters more tense for inviting third countries to join this corridor that flows, as you may guess, through those disputed lands. So where does this hostility start? The easy answer is, of course, 1947, after both countries became independent from Britain, split mostly based on Hindu and Muslim minorities, and immediately went to war, I think endlessly, over control of the Jammu and the Kashmir regions. Since then, the conflict has escalated into multiple confrontations, which have only become more concerning due to the omnipresent nuclear weapons on both sides. And there really doesn't seem to be a solution anytime soon. Meanwhile, let's hear from Thea about another concerning trend, the young tech-savvy militants in the Kashmir region. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So in August 2019, about exactly three years ago now, India stripped Jammu and Kashmir of the autonomy it had guaranteed for decades. And relations between India and Pakistan have always been tense, but they reached a boiling point at that moment. And that's now three years ago, and the deadlock resulted in increased violence and deaths. Growing numbers of young Kashmiris are turning to militancy, giving new energy to an armed struggle that as recently as a few years ago appeared to be diminishing. So educated Kashmiris have long been present among the militants, but thanks to social media, fighters are gaining new prominence and social media platforms are serving as a recruitment tool, as is the case around the world. The arrival of smartphones and high-speed internet allowed for messages from separatist leaders to reach the phones of Kashmiris directly without censorship. And people hungrily consumed video messages from young militants making this case for Kashmiri independence. About 69% of the around 12 million people living in Jammu and Kashmir are under the age of 35. And a Kashmiri politician once joked that local children learned the word azadi or freedom before they learned to call out their mother's name. 
And life for those young Kashmiris is really hard. The state is the biggest employer in Kashmir, and private sector investment is negligible due to this constant violence and instability between security forces and militants. So as a result, young Kashmiris either opt for a career in the guerrilla forces if they can't find state government jobs, which are really the only route to stability. So with a monthly average unemployment rate of about 15% in Jammu and Kashmir, you can well see which route they're probably going to take, right? So as a comparison, the national average unemployment rate was 6.4%. So that's really double that employment rate. So here's my take. Wherever youth loses hope for the future, violence and instability are just a matter of time. Pakistan contributes to numerous Islamic independence organizations, and India funds massive anti-insurgency operations in the region. And thus, both countries are radicalizing young people and creating a lost generation. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Guys, I think Taya's absolutely right. And as you can see in the exponential growth of violent episodes of the last 20 years, there's no end in sight. Neither the UN nor regional peace efforts have been able to resolve this or even advance this to some semblance of a resolution. The geopolitical angle is of particular concern, especially as the emergence of a regional rivalry between China and India continues to bubble over. India's relationships with the West have accelerated to balance Chinese assertiveness in Pakistan, and now we have three nuclear powers in the same region, two of which are continuous and contentious, and it's a growing threat to world stability. It's time to introduce our guest, Shamila Chaudhry. Shamila is a non-resident senior fellow at the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council and is president of the American Pakistan Foundation. She's an international analyst specializing in U.S. foreign policy with a focus on U.S.-Pakistan relations and regional issues in South Asia. She worked at the political risk firm, the Eurasia Group, and has decades of experience working in the U.S. government, including at the White House and the National Security Council, and as an advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Shamila, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you here for the first time. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's my pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. The, the Pakistan-India conflict is 75 years old this month. What prevents this from being resolved or taking any steps towards a resolution? Well, the, the conflict dates back to when the two countries became independent from British colonial rule in 1947. The boundaries were largely determined by British bureaucrats um, and South Asian political elites who saw some advantage in working with the British. Now, Kashmir, which is a Muslim-majority region in South Asia, was claimed both by the new India, newly established Indian state and Pakistani state. And so up, up until this day, the two countries are still disputing authority over Kashmir. And the four wars, in fact, they fought three major wars and one smaller war, are all centered around this dispute over the region of Kashmir. So is there, I mean, you know this extremely well, you've, you've worked on this issue both in the U.S. government and outside at think tanks and other places. Is there a solution possible on the horizon? Ha has the international community done enough to push a solution and to help the two countries seek a solution? Well, it's a very complicated situation because India believes that 
authority over Kashmir is an internal matter. India administers about 45% of Kashmir, while Pakistan administers the other half. And so India has determined that this is a, a part of its own country. It's a sovereign issue. Meanwhile, Pakistan wants to internationalize the issue. The, Pakistan has regularly asked the United Nations and the United States and other countries to get involved. And while the UN does have a mandate to solve this conflict that dates back to the days of partition, it has largely stayed out of it. And the same goes for the United States and the international community. So I think with, you know, in the absence of any kind of independent intermediary, it's going to be very difficult given also the rising India-US relationship, which has prioritized trade and business and, and defense cooperation, Kashmir really falls low on the list. But it's all been magnified by the fact that these now nuclear powers that is making the confrontation more dangerous and, and having others pay attention to it much more. Absolutely. I mean, I worry that the international community is not paying enough attention to the issues that cause India and Pakistan to come into conflict with each other. The nuclear component is, in fact, what should keep us up all at night. And it's the confrontation over Kashmir that repeatedly brings the two countries to the brink of escalation. And in the past, what has happened is countries like the United States and even China and the United Kingdom have served as trusted intermediaries to, to de-escalate India and Pakistan. But the geopolitics of the region have changed. Um, the Indians in the United States are on one side now and the Pakistanis and the Chinese are on the other side. So it's going to be a lot harder to de-escalate. So I, I really think this is something we need to pay attention to. So, Shamala, I have this uh, segment where I talk about youth and social justice. And here there is really this lost generation, right, in Kashmir and both countries are fomenting a radicalization of young people in the region and economic opportunities are disappearing and young people are going to the streets or to the mountains to fight. How do you return opportunity to this region? So I love that you asked me this question, because if you look at the Kashmiri diaspora, those families and individuals that have left Kashmir because of lack of opportunity, they're extremely successful, dynamic contributors to their societies overseas. Meanwhile, at home, there's still a lot of uh, discontent and disempowerment. And I think a lot of this is because both India and Pakistan have consistently subjected Kashmiri interests to their own national security agendas, right? So there's a need for kind of greater autonomy at the local level. And both sides of Kashmir are really connected to the centers of power in Pakistan and in in India. And because of that, they've become heavily militarized, heavily you know, politicized. At the same time, what's keeping people down is our you know, draconian laws that encourage human rights abuses by security forces. There's a lot of corruption. And the, really, the economy has not been developed. And that's because both countries are still controlling from the center. And so the opportunity will come once there's greater autonomy for Kashmiris to decide their own fate. And that still hasn't happened yet. Let's go back to the story of geopolitics, which is kind of the, the center of this of this podcast. There is a growing geopolitical story here where China's investments in Pakistan and other countries and the creation of a potential economic bloc is being seen as a threat by India. And what does China stand to gain there? 
Well, I think China's moves in in Pakistan are really domestic driven. You know, when it started its uh, big project of an economic corridor in Pakistan to build highways and infrastructure, it was really because it had exceeded its capacity at home for various uh, construction and infrastructure development firms to do work at home. So they sent them abroad, right? And so it made good economic sense for the Chinese to invest in Pakistan. But it's it's very small in terms of the economic influence it creates for China. It creates a lot of opportunity for Pakistan. The reason the Chinese are doing it on top of this kind of uh, domestic angle is that, you know, the bordering regions between China and Pakistan include militants that are um, anti-state, the the Uyghurs and this border region of Xinjiang. So the Chinese feel that greater involvement in Pakistan connects them more to the Pakistani security establishment, which can be helpful in containing the militant threat on its border. So there is a security component there. Um, Unfortunately, all of this has caused a lot of tension between India and China, India and the United States, and Pakistan and the United States. And I I just want to make one thing clear, though, that China and India have their own relationship to manage, which involves its own territorial disputes and economic codependency. So that is naturally going to limit the extent to which China and India will want to aggravate each other, right? So China doesn't need Pakistan to have difficult issues to talk about with India. They have their own thing going on. So in that context, as we see the world lately as a as a bipolar kind of geopolitical fight between China and the US and how this competition basically affects other countries, what in, in the context of the China-India conversation and, and issues, what is the implication of the China-US uh, kind of general war on the India-Pakistan conflict? And what are some of the ramifications of raising those tensions in this very nuclear proxy war? Well, I I actually think it's fairly limited, meaning that India-Pakistan conflict is is very much focused on the line of control. It's very much focused on the Kashmir dispute and the related conversations on you know other border disputes that they have. China-U.S. competition is a is kind of a big behemoth issue unto itself. I I do think that. Uh, there's some resentment growing within the Pakistani political establishment over, you know, the role that the U.S. has um, in elevating India on the global stage. And so that I, I think it it makes more sense for the Pakistani political elites to align with China more. Right. It's pushing certain parts of Pakistani political elites into the China camp. But I do think there are still people in Pakistan, there's still elites and um, people who govern who are very much uh, looking to balance the influence of China and have good relations with the U.S. and have good relations with India. They, they you know, Pakistan can't afford to have a bad relationship with India, despite kind of the difficulty in maintaining peace over the years. There's also a segment of the Pakistani government that has tried to initiate rapprochement and tried to have talks but given the nature of the Modi government and, you know, his agenda in Kashmir, it's been fairly difficult to get those started. And where do institutions like the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, stand in this kind of multiple sources of conflict? And, and this is for Australia, India, J- Japan and the U.S. Is it a response to China and Pakistan growing closer? Well, I do think the Quad is a response to growing Chinese influence in Asia and around the world, you know, and it's it's an attempt to kind of respond to that influence as it's grown. And the United States has been paying attention to other things in the world, like, you know, wars in the Middle East and the war in Afghanistan. Right. So it's an attempt to like refocus 
strategically on the Pacific, which I think is a really good move. Um, it's also an attempt to shape a coalition of democracies in Asia, right? In an effort to showcase the possibility of democratic leadership and power. And as much of the world is um, showing rising authoritarianism and populism, this could offer an example of that. But I, I do think that the Quad concept has caused caused some friction. The Pakistanis are, you know, uncomfortable with it because, it, again, it elevates their main competitor to the global stage. It also excludes Pakistan from a conversation about the Pacific, which it feels like it should very much be part of. Um, and so, and I think other countries that fall under the Quad, Quad's focus, you know, there's some discomfort with the Quad from other countries, which see, um, they kind of interpret the Quad as the U.S. and others giving them an option, like choose, choose, you know, these democracies over China. And I think a lot of these countries, they would prefer to just have both. They don't want to have to make a choice. Let me just ask you, since we were talking about how, how the Quad affects Pakistan, I, you know, you, you're, you lead the American Pakistan Foundation in Pakistan, as you pointed out, used to be an American, close American ally, but that has changed radically. And now the U.S. and India are seem to be building each other up. And but how feasible is it to try to rebuild bridges with Pakistan? And and what needs to be done to start rebuilding those bridges? Well, I think it's absolutely feasible to rebuild bridges in diplomacy. I mean, that's the whole point of diplomacy is to keep talking even when you have the most difficult issues at hand. And and maybe you don't agree, right? But you still kind of, you, you keep the conversation going because, uh, you know, there are always going to be shared interests. And I think that's the big question everyone has right now that's following uh, U.S.-Pakistan relations is what are the shared interests? What are the common goals that these two countries can have now that this big war in Afghanistan is over, that has lasted so long and defined everything? And I think that you know, I, I sort of look at it more as a, uh, I have a framework that I use to see like what is possible. And the first thing I look at is, are there natural bridge builders for this relationship? Are there people and organizations that are already doing things to connect the two countries? Doesn't have to be governments, by the way. So the example I always give is there are Pakistani Americans who work in tech companies in Silicon Valley. Their, their um, kind of interest in giving back to Pakistan led them to encourage American tech companies to invest in Pakistan. And that worked to a certain extent because tech companies appreciate the personal touch and they were willing to to take these, you know, these Pakistan American leaders, like, you know, vouching for, you know, the, the promise of Pakistan over the risk that it presented, right? So that finding the bridge builders is important. Governments should take advantage of that. I, I think another big issue is that we just uh, have to build pipelines for growth. So there's a lot of, um, you know, there are communities like students, faculty, academics, researchers who we could encourage them to study U.S.-Pakistan relations. We could encourage them to study Pakistan, speak, learn, learn to speak Urdu, and that will get them interested in the country over the long run, rather than just people who go and study or get, get posted there to, to focus on security issues, right? So I think those are two things that can be constructive in looking to repair ties. The third final point I want to make is that both countries have a push and pull of domestic politics that shapes the relationship. So here, you know, the fact that Osama bin Laden was found living in Pakistan and was killed living in while living in Pakistan is an emotional issue for us. That's going to be a domestic issue. We have to manage that, you know. And then similarly in Pakistan, there are lots of conspiracy theories of U.S. meddling in, you know, de determining who's the leader of Pakistan, for example. That also has to be managed in the relationship instead of using it as a reason to disengage. 
What does the inside look about on, on Pakistani politics? Recently, Prime Minister Imran Khan has been removed from office and uh, to blame once again seems to be the ever-interventionist Pakistani army and intelligence services. So what it, why is uh, Pakistan's crisis prone, to, so to speak? Well, I, you know, since Pakistan's inception, it's experienced tensions between civilian leaders and a powerful military. It's not unlike a lot of other countries uh, that, you know, went through post-colonial kind of the, the post-colonial experience. Um, that being said, I think Imran Khan's um, ouster was done legally and democratically. And that shows that Pakistan has this very vibrant democratic culture and a formal democracy in place, which, of course, has been consumed by these growing like kleptocratic forces, corruption and dynastic politics and the overbearing military, right? And and we've also seen the growing populism and authoritarianism happening there too, with progressive voices being silent. So it there's a lot to be concerned about, but I, I, I think some of these are legacy issues. Some of them are also just who happens to be in government at the moment. Some of them are just the basic neglect of hard decisions that need to be made on you know, economic reform and uh, you know political reform. So it's a combination of the short and the long term that needs to be addressed. So the whole world is in economic crisis and, and Pakistan seems to be in an economic freefall. And compared to India's growing economy, Pakistan seems to be falling further and further behind. And that cannot possibly be a good thing for stability. Yeah, no, well, I think it's in everyone's interest for a stable, uh, prosperous Pakistan. I mean, this is a country that has a large, large growing um, youth population. It's globally connected. Its diaspora is very influential. And this hotbed of security issues just happens to be kind of, you know, simmering uh, for several decades now in its backyard, in its front yard. And so when, when a country like Pakistan threatens to go into default, that's, not good for everyone, right? And but at the same time, I think uh, there there are parts of the international community that are very much like linked up with ensuring that Pakistan gets saved from time to time. And so we've seen the IMF go in, we've seen the United States and the, and the Brits go in to kind of vouch for Pakistan, and they they constantly seem to be you know picked up by their patrons. Now I think what the problem with there's big problems with that approach. Um, mainly, they don't fix the 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 kind of the more systemic issues with the economy that need to be addressed, like increasing trade exports and, you know, doing a lot of uh, the internal reforms and corruption and making a more uh, a better business climate for people to come come and invest. And so I, th there's a lot of homework and long term work that needs to be done on the economic side of things before they can actually become stable and avoid these like periodic crises. So since Muni asked the question about Pakistani politics, I'll ask the question about Indian politics. And, and clearly the Kashmir crisis continues to be stoked by Prime Minister Modi's party uh, and other extremist Hindu politics in India. I mean, how does one get beyond this in India and where are Indian politics going? The rising tide of Hindu fundamentalism in India is really concerning. I don't think that it's representative of all Indians, of course, but there's definitely been a shift in the acceptance of, you know, fundamentalist ideas and behavior. And that's coincided with uh, the tenure of Prime Minister Modi. And he's, in fact, he's consistently consolidated his power around it, which I think is more worrisome. The decision to change the status of Kashmir and making it, integrating it more into India is also something that was a welcome move amongst fundamentalist thinkers. So, it, you know, Modi views 
fundamentalist forces as important political stakeholders of his. So as long as that is the case, I think we can expect more extremist politics in Indian politics. We have you here, so I can't resist not not asking you about the use of Pakistan's airspace, the drones that killed uh, al-Zawahiri the other day in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. How, how will this affect uh, U.S.? I, mean, I presume it'll at least temporarily worsen relations with Pakistan. So it's interesting. I haven't seen much come out about kind of Pakistan in the context of the Zawahiri strike. What what I think is something important to watch is the fact that Zawahiri was found there, and and the U.S. took a, a very bold move of of taking him out. What does that mean for just regional stability? Because it it, it sets up a conversation whereby the U.S. can say hey, Afghan Taliban, you reneged on our Doha agreement. And so we're not, you know, we're not in any position to accept you internationally. And it puts Pakistan in a very uncomfortable situation still. I mean, they've been in a a tough spot, but it puts them in an uncomfortable situation because they have very close relationship with the Taliban. It's complicated, but they have a close relationship. And so the U.S. is, is that U.S.-Pakistan tension will remain unresolved, I think, for a while. Okay, so last question, take out your crystal ball and and tell us what you see in the future for both countries. And in particular, is there a way for both countries to start talking a little bit more? And are you pessimistic or optimistic? Oh, boy, this is a tough one. I mean, I had to really think about this. I... I think I'm probably an inter- eternal optimist with South Asia because I continue to study it and I see the dynamism of the people. And so if, I, if I'm if i looking at what is hopeful about both countries, I would say, you know, the idea that we can take advantage of the demographic opportunity, the human capital that is so dynamic in the country and, and the prospects of that, I think are... Uh, make me feel very optimistic, right? That being said, you know, uh, there's still a lot of the population in both countries that just can't even read and doesn't have access to basic education and healthcare. And so I, I get much more pessimistic when I think about the socioeconomic development needs and how the populations have been underserved by their governments. Um, but I, I, I do think that global connectivity and the kind of the, the growing demographics uh, of both countries, you know, mean that we should still pay attention. Thank you so much. What an interesting conversation. Thank you. I think it's remarkable how in so many cases where there's conflicts like this, it is up to civil society and not governments to actually fix things from the grassroots. And I find that that is kind of hopeful and also concerning at the same time. Yeah, I love how uh, Mooney is an optimist about uh, how civil society and others can help to solve things. But, you know, and, and Shamila was trying to be diplomatically optimistic, too. But I have to say this this is a there's so much cultural history in this that you can't help but being a pessimist about what happens in Kashmir in the next 50 years. It's a situation in which Muslims and Hindus have become radicalized and there is zero trust between them and you know this the, the tensions have existed since Pakistan and India became two separate countries, and they'll continue to exist. You know, I agree with you, Peter, on your pessimism um, or realism, I would call it. I did like her take a lot on uh, the diaspora and then the importance of the diaspora and 
changing the situation on the ground. And I know from my, you know, where, where my family is from, which is the former Yugoslavia, I know how involved the diaspora was in the 1990s in the war and how much they are actually have power to change things. Um, so I, I really did like that people focus. And then one thing that really stood out to me, which was exactly that, which is the importance of non-government, of, of businesses, of individuals in affecting things. So um, with that, we will close it out. We'd love for you to communicate with us, tell us your opinions by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And also don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. Also, sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter where we give you an analysis of global trends and we will see you next time.